This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Elizabeth Egan discusses her debut novel, A Window Opens. Then PW staff writer Shannon Mon tells us how school teachers and school librarians are using ebooks. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So there's a bunny all over our bestseller yes. list. How, how did that happen? This is a self-published book. Yeah, this is a self-published book. The book is called The Rabbit Who Wants to Fall Asleep. And this is the number six book overall with about 29,000 copies sold, uh, print copies sold. Wow. And it's number two on the children's uh, picture book list. And we uh, did a piece on that in this week's, uh, this week's issue. And uh, it's pretty, you know, as we've been covering more and more self-published books, it's... Uh, Kind of uh, interesting to see which ones are making it, and that that these self-published books, some of them, few of them, but but they do reach you know a wide readership. So yeah, definitely. Uh, that's pretty that's pretty exciting. So that's that's really the big story uh, on the uh, uh, on the on our bestseller list overall. And, and the claim is that this presents some novel way to get children to sleep. So if you read it to them, they just pass out. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and exactly. I guess there are a lot of desperate, right, right. tired parents. <laughs> yes, yes, that's so true. <laughs> all right. Well, it, it'll be interesting to see whether it stays on the list or all of those desperate, tired parents decide it didn't work and bring it back. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in uh, in fiction, we've got a few interesting things on the fiction hardcover list. At number three is Friction by Sandra Brown. Uh, we say her highly recognizable brand of romantic suspense is on full display in this novel. Uh, the romantic couple at the heart of it are a Texas ranger named Crawford Hunt and a judge named Holly Spencer. And they collide in the courtroom, in the bedroom, and in a desperate attempt to save reputations and lives. Mm. Uh, our review says that Brown expertly ratchets up the passion and danger as Crawford fights for his life, his daughter, and his new love, Holly. So uh, that's definitely one for the romantic suspense fans out there. Sandra Brown really balances the the, the different kinds of pulse pounding action, mm. um, keeps the story moving. Right. So that's at number three. And number eight, Jonathan Kellerman's The Murderer's Daughter. Um, obviously, Kellerman's a longtime bestseller. And uh, we say that many readers will struggle to sympathize with the protagonist of this standalone, which has a very improbable plot. Uh, there's a, a flashback mm-hmm. opening uh, about a young girl who's in, neglected and abused. And then as an adult, she is the protagonist of the novel and trying to figure things out for herself. She has a reckless side. She's independently wealthy mm-hmm. uh, and she's a therapist. And when one of her one-time flings becomes one of her patients, uh, things start going south mm-hmm. and uh, we say that readers should be prepared for some florid prose i'm really going to enjoy reading this aloud <laughs> the ocean to the west a series of gray cresting waves on black satin the mountains to the east 
an endless chocolate bar. So if that's the sort yeah. of thing you like, you like this. Then you like that, sure, <laughs> sure. Uh, but that's, uh, <laughs> it's definitely very visual. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's at number eight on our hardcover fiction list. Moving down a little at number 14, Last Bus to Wisdom, Ivan Doig. And this is, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. And he died in April 2015. And we say that the pleasures of reading his final novel are bittersweet. Mm. They're familiar themes, love for his native Montana, and his astute observation of and admiration for the tough homesteaders and ranchers who eke out hard scrabble living there. And he returns to his familiar Double W Ranch, mm. uh, which his readers will know. Right. And we say this book lacks the deeper resonance of his previous novels uh, and of his classic nonfiction memoir, This House of Sky. But it's nonetheless a heartwarming, memorable story. Right. And finally, at number 18, Everybody Rise by Stephanie Clifford. Uh, this made a lot of buzz when uh, the... the uh, the deal was made. Uh, it's a debut novel, and St. Martin's mm. bought it for over a million dollars. And it's debuting at number 18 with only 2,700 copies sold in hardcover, according to uh, Nielsen. So wow. uh, it remains to be seen whether St. Martin's is going to get its investment back, but right. anything's possible. We'll see if it rises up the list in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. And uh, our review says uh, it's got an upstart heroine and uh, she wages a one-woman assault on the old money snobbery of the Upper East Side mm. in the days before the Wall Street stock market crash of 2008. And uh, we say the novel displays none of the melancholy irony of the Sondheim song for which it is named, but it is an amusing page-turning beach read. And so that's uh, what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. And on nonfiction, we, I, we've noticed the last few weeks, three, four weeks, there's been a lot of uh, religious books, uh, specifically Christian-themed or Christian-influenced books. And, and topping our list is For the Love, Fighting for Grace in a World of Impossible Standards by uh, Jen Hatmaker. She's a Christian mom blogger whose family starred on an HGTV show called My Big Family Renovation. Uh, she's got 76,000 Twitter followers and 97,000 wow. Instagram followers. So, um, and this is one where you can see social media is just, is just kind of converting to uh, big sales in the book. So she's got a lot going on there. And that's number one on our list. And at number six, following the Christian theme books, we have Rediscover Jesus, Matthew Kelly. Uh, we don't have a review of this book in, uh, but the uh, promo copy says that a time when so many people are spiritually disillusioned and searching for ways to live, love, work, and play that nurture the soul rather than the destroy. Matthew Kelly once again delivers a powerful book that encourages us in our weariness. Again, that's from the, the jacket copy. So that's at number six. At number 23, The Gratitude Diaries, How a Year Looking on the Bright Side Transformed My Life by Janice Kaplan. She's the author of I'll See You Again. And here she shares her journey of embracing a lifestyle of gratitude for one year and the practice's remarkable effects on her physical and mental well-being. This is from, from our review. Over the course of the year, she focuses on being thankful for her husband, children, sister, and career, and financial status. We say that Kaplan's study is insightful and loaded with compelling research and solid techniques for positive thinking, and her own example provides the most convincing testament to her ideas. 
number 32, we're going to end with one more book, another Christian themed book, The Call, The Life and Message of the Apostle Paul by Adam Hamilton. And this is, as I said, number 32. We don't have a review of this book, but the uh, Jack copy says, we have traced the life of Jesus from his birth through the ministry, the way to the death and resurrection. This is what um, uh, Adam Hamilton has done. So uh, now we're following the message through Apostle Paul. All right. And so that's what we have. So those that's are what we the, have. So this is really interesting because I don't think of August as a, a right. big time for these books, but uh, they're clearly on the rise. I wonder if it has more to do with the presidential election or you know U.S. politics. Yeah, than, I'm really not sure. I know. I, I know. know. And it's and like I said, the last three or four weeks. So. Um, I'm going to do a little little more uh, peeking around to see what, what, what we've got next week and uh, to see if there's anything bigger uh, in the world that's going on. <laughs> Why? We're maybe some money maybe the apocalypse is coming and we just don't know it. Right, right. And it, along with those, a lot of self-help books, too. So, that's true. So it's, a, so, it's, so it's a turn to the introspective, it seems. Um, uh, I, I mean, we get, we get waves of those, but this one seems to be uh, holding on for a while. All right. Well, it'll be interesting to follow that along. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Elizabeth Egan tells us about women's midlife crises. We'll be right back. I'm Naomi Jackson, author of The Star Side of Bird Hill, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, I've got Elizabeth Egan on the line. Her debut novel is A Window Opens. Hello, Liz. So glad you could be on the show. Mark, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So this is your first novel. Um, Tell us a little bit about it, and who exactly is Alice Pierce? Alice Pierce is the star and protagonist of A Window Opens. She is a woman in her late 30s who lives in suburban New Jersey, has three kids, and a husband who has recently left his job as uh, an associate at a law firm, and he's been asked to leave because he's not made partner, and he leaves in kind of a spectacular fashion where he throws his computer (laughs) across the room in a rage and really burns the bridge at that firm. (laughs) So Alice finds herself needing to find bigger job of her own. She has been a a part-time book editor at a women's magazine, and she strikes out in the career world to find a full-time job to help support the family while her husband gets himself back on her feet. And she is a lifelong book lover and is thrilled to land a job at a company called Scroll, which is hoping to become the Starbucks of bookstores. And her job is to be a tastemaker for the store and come up with a list of books for them to sell. It seems like a dream job, Mm -hmm. as many jobs do. And when she starts, she quickly realizes that things at Scroll are not exactly what they seem. And... In short order, her father, who has had cancer before, has a recurrence. Her children suddenly become needier than ever. Her babysitter gets fed up with the whole scene. And her husband has a much harder time getting back on his feet Mm -hmm. career-wise than he thought he would. So Alice finds herself in this perfect midlife storm that I think many of us are familiar with. And it's kind of supposed to be a funny take on what it's like to try and have it all in mm. this 
moment in time. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the town of Philemon. Um, you and I are friends. We live in the same New Jersey town. And, and reading your book, I, I feel like I, I can navigate your fictional town pretty well. Uh, describe to, to, the, to our listeners Philemon. And, and how did you come up with that name? Well, Philemon is uh, indeed based on the town that we live in. <laughs> it's uh, a small town in New Jersey about 10 or 15 miles west of New York City. Mm-hmm. And I came up with the name Filament because I grew up in South Orange, New Jersey, not far from where we live now, and spent a lot of time as a kid at the Edison Laboratory in West mm, Orange. Right. You've probably been there yourself. Yes. And um, that's where the light bulb was invented. And you might remember that a key part of the light bulb is the filament. And because Alice had a, has a series of light bulb moments, so to speak, in this book, I somehow fixated on the, on the filament. Oh, fantastic! Um, and the town itself is, I hope, in its own way, a character in the book. It's a. I really wanted to create that particular New Jersey suburban vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who commute into the city. The the moms who really buoy Alice up when she's in her in her low moments, the stores that you can walk to from your house, including this amazing independent bookstore owned by Alice's best friend Susanna. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wanted readers to have a feeling of of the townspeople the way that I do every day, because those are the people I'm so excited to come home to after a day of work. Mm. And, and of course, with the, uh, the, uh, the various uh, places for yoga or Pilates yes. and all those in the, uh, the whole foods or uh, whatever you have there. Uh, and, and it, it sounds like you, you, as you described, uh, Alice is taking on this, uh, this role in the family of, you know, or at least wanting to as, as breadwinner. Um, but it, you kind of, to restore the family income, but she seems, I, I get this, you know, she seems vaguely dissatisfied with her life in any case. Yes, I think at the beginning, even before Nicholas, her husband loses his job, she finds herself at what I've been thinking of as a midlife coming of age. Mm-hmm. And that point where you're married, you're settled into where you thought you'd be, you have all the children you you'd like to have and they're starting to grow up and it's that moment she's at that moment where you start thinking what's the next big thing like I'm happy but something is missing and for Alice feels that part of what's missing in her life is the realization of the big ambition she had when she graduated from college to be a big time editor and a player in the publishing world Mm. and um, so the book is, is, is partly about her way back from that sense of dissatisfaction. Right. Well, so let's talk a little bit more about midlife here. I mean, as you said, you know, we, we were, you know, we kind of know about, you know, we've, there's been a lot of stuff now of satire, you know, men's midlife crises, but, mm-hmm. but what about the the midlife crises that women are going through. I, I kind of feel like you're you've tapped into something of our generation now. As you said, women who have had kids who might have sacrificed work 
uh, decisions uh, in order to raise kids. Maybe they went part-time. Maybe they they stayed full-time but weren't able to do quite what they wanted to do. And now as they're getting older, they're starting to rethink their lives. I mean, what what is the midlife, you know, the crisis for women right now versus men? It's, it might be hard for me to describe because I'm probably right in the middle of it and don't have a lot of perspective on it. But I, I think it's a moment where you feel a little bit in, invisible. Mm-hmm. You don't have the... Maybe you've lost some of the luster and promise you had when you're in your 20s, but you also haven't earned the calm or mm. the the peace of of later middle age but i say that in a way that i don't mean that as a negative i find this to be a phase with very strong friendships and i'm i hope to show that in this book uh and i i wanted to show the humor of of this point in life where you're no longer at least i'm no longer completely stressed out and spread in a million directions having little kids. It's kind of the mental game of motherhood and parenthood rather than the physical game. And I started to feel that this moment isn't really represented in pop culture or this type of mother that I'm trying to get at in this book. When you watch sitcoms on TV, the mom is always the punchline. She's always like, my kids love this show. Good luck, Charlie. And they love the mother in this show. And the mother is like always the the fall guy. She's kind of a dope. And (laughs) I I don't know. I just, I I feel that the way that I'm experiencing motherhood isn't really, I don't see it. I don't read about it in books and I don't see it in movies or on TV. So I try to capture my own corner of that experience and the, conversations that I have with friends about what it's really like at this moment. I I don't consider myself a soccer mom and I don't consider myself a full throttle career mom. Mm -hmm. I don't really think that most of the women I know are able to completely identify Mm. either way. And I think that that's one of the great liberations of our, our moment in generation X that we haven't, some of us had to, wear the label on our forehead the way our mothers did. But there are complications that go along with not having a a very clear sense of identity at this point in life. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Talking about friends and and the key, the the key friendships uh, we have in our lives. Let's talk about Susanna and, and, and what, what role does she play in Alice's life? Um, they, they seems, the, the way you describe your life seems to be this, these are two moms who have, who have connected very quickly uh, or connected very quickly and then had a long friendship afterwards. Yes, these are, Susanna is the kind of friend that you make in, in your late 20s, early 30s, who very quickly becomes family. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she's the owner of the local independent bookstore and functions very much as Alice's Jiminy Cricket. She's Alice's conscience. And when Alice takes this job at this kind of faceless retail corporation, Susanna is the one who pushes back and says, is this really the best thing for you? And also, by the way, do you realize what this business 
that you're going to work for might do to my little bookstore that is so important to us and to the community. And I wanted to show the way that the two of them are not just connected friend to friend, but their families are friends and their kids have been a part of each other's lives and their husbands go camping every fall and families have dinner on Sundays together. And I think that a friendship like that is one of the great blessings of this phase of life or really any phase of life. And the stakes become really high as your as families become enmeshed like that. So when Susanna is frustrated with Alice for her career choices, everyone in the family stands to to lose if that friendship falters. So it's just another thing that Alice feels unhappy about and disconnected from in her low moments in the book. And uh, their uh, their friendship becomes briefly tested when uh, Alice's, uh, Alice tells uh, Susanna that she's been interviewing for Scroll. And mm-hmm. um, it's been pointed out there, uh, others have pointed out the similarities, or, or I should say that, uh, that that Scroll seems to be a, uh, uh, a, a mash of Amazon and BNN. Uh, <laughs> and, and Amazon has been in the news so much in this last yeah. two weeks. Um, uh, tell us about the maybe the similarities and differences between your experience at Amazon, I should say that you worked yes. uh, as an editor there for for a while, um, mm-hmm. and and maybe uh, Alice's at Scroll. Uh, I did work at Amazon briefly for about thirteen months, from two thousand twelve to two thousand thirteen, mm-hmm. and almost immediately felt like a stranger in a strange land. It, it just wasn't really the right fit for me from the get go, and that was the germ of the idea of this book, that feeling of being in the wrong story and being eager to leave. And I think it's, I I poke some fun at the corporate culture and the funny lingo that Alice has to learn as I did at at Amazon. It was kind of like parachuting into, uh, you know, a country where I didn't speak the language and having to learn not only the language, but a whole, you know, I had never used a PC before. I was a Mac person. (laughs) I had never used Excel before. I, you know, I just had, it was a very, very steep learning curve. So I wanted to show what that experience would be like for a woman at a particular stage of life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that it could really be an experience you might have at at any large corporation, Alice has come from a very cushy job at a, at a magazine where she is very is really friends with everyone she works with. She's known them for years, and Squirrel is a very professional and appro- appropriately so work environment. So I wanted to to show how how foreign that was to her. It's funny; a number of the reviews have made comparisons to Barnes and Noble. That never really never once crossed my mind. Ah, okay. Um, <laughs> right. But but it I I guess I can see I can see how it how it might come up. But um the corporate culture at Amazon was was fairly close to what I'm writing about here. So, um but the experience that the experiences that Alice has in her personal life while she's working at school, having a sick father and having a husband who kind of goes off the rails, those did not happen to me when I worked, thankfully, at Amazon. And had they, I have every certainty that the people that I worked for would have been a little bit more supportive than the people that Alice worked for. 
We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with Elizabeth Egan, author of A Window Opens, and we've been talking about her her new novel, uh, which is just out in bookstores today. In the New York Times review of your book, Amanda Fortini quotes Alice early in the book and says, think of this as the, uh, uh, she uses a quote, and then uh, Amanda Fortini writes, think of it as Chekhov's gun of chick lit. How does that label chick lit or mom lit sit with you? It's not my favorite label. Um, I'm a huge fan of chiclets, the gum, but I don't love <laughs> the term chiclet. Mm-hmm. It's hard to it's hard to put my finger on exactly what it is that I don't. There, there, there's something very dismissive about the term itself. Although I understand where she's coming from when when she says that, but it does make me think. You know, if a woman like a titan of industry, say Sheryl Sandberg, or somebody. A, you know, who's a, a great thinker in the government and a dean at Princeton, like Anne-Marie Slaughter, if they're writing about issues of motherhood and work and family and ambition, that's considered serious nonfiction. Right. But if it's written about as fiction, it's often filed away as chiclet. And I knew that that would be something that would probably come up when this book came out. I wasn't at all surprised. But I like to think that this book has several layers to it. It's not just about the friendship between Susanna and Alice or or Alice and her work situation or Alice and her family. There's also, there's a very strong, I think, theme of um, Alice taking care of her her father who is dying of throat cancer and that really, to to Alice, devastating pull between the family that she grew up with, who she's still very close to, and the, and little kids that she's raising at the moment, and the feeling of, of loss that hangs over her as her father is dying. So I don't think anybody sets out to write a book and say, this is just going to be totally light and fluffy cotton candy. And right. to me, the term chiclet insinuates that intention sure. which was not mine right and and uh i, I mean obviously uh this is a, a completely different experience for you as someone who is uh the books that are at glamour uh you're on the other side of things now <laughs> what's that been like it's actually it's been really fun i mean it's yeah. it also comes with a big slice of humble pie mm. because when you're the person i mean you know this when you receive 50 to 70 books every day, maybe 30 to 50 books every day. You have to go through those books with kind of with a ruthless eye and separate them quickly into, into two piles. Ones you'll look at, ones you won't look at, or maybe ones you'll pass along to another editor to look at. Uh, That sifting of books every day has gotten a lot harder for me now that I've written a book of my own. And I know that each of those jiffy envelopes that shows up at my desk at Glamour contains somebody's dream. And I 
have a, an, a whole new respect for the loneliness of writing the book, the, a book, the the tenacity it requires to write a book, yeah. and the huge leap of faith it takes to wake up every day and keep going. So um, it's been fun being on the other side, and yeah, I think you develop a little bit of a thick skin because, of course, your book isn't everyone's cup of tea. Right. Other people's books are often not your cup of tea. So you get used to it. It's been funny, though. My family, it takes my kids and my husband, um, are much more sensitive to any perceived slight. And I keep saying to them, this is how it goes, guys. Like, mm. everybody gets some <laughs> bad reviews. Everybody gets some lukewarm reviews. Right. It's totally normal um, because I've seen it many times over the past 20 years. But they're kind of like... Oh my God! Are your feelings hurt? <laughs> That's great that you're able to do that because I uh, I found it's it's so hard at, at times when uh, I think an overwhelmingly positive review might have one uh, one one criticism and that kind of lingers in your head or at least mine. <laughs> um, oh yes, make no mistake. Yeah. It does. Those lines are the only ones I remember. But I'm starting to realize that's my own. You that is a pathology. I just need to deal with. Uh-huh. I'm trying so hard to turn down the volume on, on on only hearing the criticism. I'm trying to focus on the positive. It's not always easy, though. Yeah, right. Exactly. And it's I'm so accustomed to writing reviews and thinking every time you write a review, you think you can't just say great things. You have to put some criticism in right. there. Yeah, and I have evaluation. to admit, sometimes I'm racking my brain for something slightly critical to say. Right. And little did I realize that probably that slightly critical thing I had to rack my brain to come up with is the one thing the writer is going to take away from it. Well, so as a book reviewer, what are you most likely to, to overlook or forgive in a book? That's such an interesting question. I am probably weirdly more inclined to um, forgive a plot that is not extremely Mm. fast moving if I feel that the character is somebody I connect with who has a lot of layers and is very textured and sympathetic to Mm. me. Or actually maybe not sympathetic, somebody who isn't familiar to me, who I'm eager to get to know. Somebody complicated like the character in Luckiest Girl Alive or the character in The Girl on the Train, you know, people who are not necessarily sympathetic narrators, who I'm just curious to get to know. Those are are both books that have very fast-moving plots, but um, I'm okay with a plot that might be a little bit of a snooze if I love the character. Right, right. So there could be... How about you? Um... I think uh, for me as as a book review editor, I don't know. I feel that um, I, I I have to say, hearing that, I, I completely agree. I mean, I know listening to music, talking to my wife who works in music, she can uh, she can over overlook uh, uh, flaws in the playing as long as there's passion there, uh, yeah. and and I feel That's the so same. And I feel the same way. Uh, now, what about something that you're least likely to forgive? I, I guess I would say almost the same thing. I'm not. Yeah. I can't forgive a character I don't find interesting. Right. I don't care if there are a million twists and turns in in the plot. If it's set in the most spectacularly interesting place, mm-hmm. in the most you know scintillating time in in history, if I don't. If I don't feel it for the characters, I'm out. Right. 
And how has being a book review editor or, uh, you know, even a, you know, a, a, uh, a book editor and a book uh, reviewer, how has that informed your own writing? I mean, have there been detriments and um, what might have been the advantages? I know for me, looking, sometimes it can be just overwhelming, just the sheer number of books that come in. Um, Definitely. And, and just saying, wow, uh, how, you know, and, and also seeing some books that are just absolutely amazingly written. Yes. In the time that when I was writing this book, when those books hit my desk, like I read um, Matthew Thomas's book, We Are Not Ourselves. Mm-hmm while I was writing this book and I just was floored by the language and same with all the light we cannot see redeployment. I felt that way about, um, the goldfinch, you know, just certain books that you're like, Oh, this is totally out of my league. It's, but I, or at least we think that that when we're reading that, you know, (laughs) getting that beautiful language in your head though, I think can be inspiring in some way. Sure. I worked really hard to turn down the volume on on my inner editor, so even even more so than the reviewing side of my brain. Because I've been an editor so long, I think in red ink, mm-hmm. and I I put a sentence on the page and immediately hear the comments that I would deliver to the writer of that sentence. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're writing something that's longer than 2,000 words, which was the longest thing I had ever written in 20 years up until mm-hmm. this point, you really have to you really have to unplug a little bit and just let yourself go, so you have something to revise later. If you're trying to micromanage every sentence, you just won't get anywhere. So I had to I had to leave the editor at the door and try and get in the mind frame of a writer, which got easier as time went on. But in the beginning, it was so humbling. Mm. And it was so, um, it, it was it was like trying to ride a bike for the first time. And at what point in your career did you, had you always wanted to write a novel? Or was this something that uh, just, just kind of came about to say, I can do this and I want to do this? How did it happen? I, I always wanted to do it. But I never thought I could do it. Right. And then finally, I just got tired of being an armchair quarterback and telling other people what I thought of everyone else's novels. And I just decided to buckle down and do it. I had this refrain that I would say over the years whenever anybody asked me if I was interested in doing writing of my own. And I always said, oh, I'm not a writer. I'm an editor. I'm not a writer. I'm an, edit- I'm an editor. And then at some point, maybe it's this midlife you know, coming of age I was talking about, Mm. I remembered way back when I was a writer. Before I knew what an editor was, I was a writer. And I was always a reader. Mm. And I just decided to tap back into that that love of writing. At some point when I was working at Amazon, somebody said to me, you know, you're a good writer. (laughs) And I thought, wait, I've always been a writer. How did I let this slip so far into the backseat of my life? So really starting to write this book was my first attempt at um, reconnecting with that girl who wrote stories in a black and white composition notebook in in 1980. And how long ago was this that you got that inspiration and and the determination to finally do it when you started this Uh, book? I left my, it was right when I left my job at Amazon, which was May of 2013. 
And I started writing the book in June of 2013, and I wasn't working from May of that year until September. And so over that summer, I woke up early, drove my daughter to swim team practice, took out my laptop, and just wrote for two hours. And uh, by the time fall rolled around, I I didn't have a whole first draft, but I had a lot of really bad pages to work with. And then it was nice to have the inner editor because I could see where there was a little glimmer of hope. So, and now the book is out. Uh, You've been getting reviews. Uh, You've written an op-ed and uh, you've been giving readings. Have you had any time to think about what might be next for you? Yes, I'm working on Another book, actually, which I just sold to Simon & Schuster, to Mary Sue Rucci, the editor of A Window Opened. Somebody gave me very good advice when I sold this book last summer. And I said, it's not coming out for a year. What am I going to do in this year? Because I was already in the groove of writing. And somebody, I can't remember who it was, but somebody said, start writing something else. And I didn't have a, a fully baked idea. So this book isn't coming to me quite as fluidly as the first one did. But I just started jotting down ideas on note cards, which is how I learned to write a research paper and how I approached writing a book twice now. And um, it's very different. It's not I was gonna it's ask. not autobiographical at all. And it is um, it also takes place in New Jersey. It takes a place again in filament. Uh, and I'm nowhere near finished, but I have a nice <laughs> I have a I have a beginning that I'm happy with, and so that's what I'll turn to as soon as this week is over. Probably. Right. Well, well, hopefully it'll be longer than a week, but it is always nice to have something uh, to turn your attention to. Uh, you know, when the uh, you know after the tours, after the readings, and you've got something to jump right in. Yes, hopefully. (laughs) I've been talking with Elizabeth Egan. You can find her book, A Window Opens, in stores right now. Liz, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mark. This was really fun. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW staff writer Shannon Mon talks about school libraries going digital. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Anil Anantaswamy. I'm author of the book, The Man Who Wasn't There, uh, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW staff writer Shannon Mon is here to tell us about how school libraries and teachers are buying and using ebooks. Hi, Shannon. Hi, how are you? We're doing very well. It's great to have you on the show. So um, yeah, this is based on a feature that's coming out in uh, this coming week's issue of Publishers Weekly. And uh, you opened it by saying that there's a debate over the pros and cons of implementing ebooks in schools. So tell us a little bit about that debate, which you said is robust. Um, I think I characterized it as robust because it's something that always comes up in discussions with either educators or publishers who prepare or uh, create materials for them um, because it is the wave of the future to have digital content available for students. Mm -hmm. And that is something that always comes up, and we wanted to take a little bit closer look at that and um, 
when we did speak with educators and publishers and distributors, they all indeed had something to say. So what were they telling you about that? I think the main gist of of the conversation is is that um, e-books are are here to stay, as, as I mentioned, and digital content is an important part of school life these days. And teachers and school librarians are still at the stage where they are learning how to implement them into both the classroom and the school library. And the reason that it is taking a while is because there are just so many factors to consider when they want to do this. So what grades are we talking about here? What what, what grades did you cover in the article? We are talking specifically about kindergarten through 12th grade, so kindergarten through high school. And so, I mean, are, are, do we find that, that students are using ebooks or reading ebooks, and, and at what grade do they start using them? Uh, there isn't a, a cut and dry cutoff, I guess, for, for age level of ebook use. However, we do know anecdotally, and, and there is also research about um, younger children's use of tablets and computers, it, it tends to be, I'd say, below grade three. Um, and a lot of people that we spoke with are using um, more limited digital content, and they tend to use tablets uh, that are shared among the students and, and used with teachers or presented by school librarians. And for older students, there is more use of devices, obviously, because they are able to do that more independently. And we also learned that a majority of digital content use and ebook use in schools is of nonfiction uh, that either supports curriculum or state standards or whatever standards the school is implementing. Um, and we find that uh, educators are telling us that ebook use is, is a lot of it is for research uh, and it may not be a full-length book, it may be through databases, it may be shorter texts, um, and at this point, the majority of what's being used is, is definitely supporting the curriculum that the teachers are putting in place. Yeah, uh, I've got a son who's going into the fourth grade, and he started using uh, tablets and all in the, I guess, second, second grade a lot during third, and I, absolutely right. What I've seen him use is information that's that's curriculum based. I mean, definitely not reading novels on it, uh, though he's reading you know, you know, paperback novels. But mm-hmm. um, how how are teachers acquiring, uh, buying, and, and and using them? So we already said using them. They're using them basically to support curriculum. But how are they buying them? Uh, well, they're buying them in a number of different ways, and. Uh, the reason for that largely is because publishers are also still ironing out uh, all of their policies about the sale and license of ebooks. Mm. And we've seen those issues calm down a little bit in the public library market world where there is sort of one major player that um, is, is providing. Um, ebook distribution to public libraries, and everyone has kind of just rolled along with that. But in the school market, there are many players. We do have um, 
you know, one who who leads the pack um, in terms of uh, coverage, you know, in, in the number of schools, but there are lots and lots of options out there for teachers to choose from. And uh, it's not just as easy as finding somebody to purchase digital content from. You also have to look at all the factors in terms of whether your school is able to use electronic devices, uh, whether your school has um, broadband, Mm -hmm. has good Wi-Fi access, has people on staff that are good at tech support. Um, All of those issues uh, Mm -hmm. come into play, and they should come into play even before um, thinking about which products you're going to buy. You have to figure out all of those technical things so that you can make the transition as easy as possible for the teachers and for the students and the parents and everybody else who's involved as well. And I imagine it, 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 the, the kinds of, of, of uh, uh, equipment they get, the kinds of uh, bandwidth they have is, is determined by how well off the school is. Exactly. It's, it's all over the map. Um, and we talk a bit about that, and, and there certainly is an argument here, as there is everywhere else, for the digital divide, which is very real especially in the school market. And there are affluent districts who are able to provide devices for all of their students in addition to having great tech setups. And, you know, obviously there are school districts districts who just simply cannot afford to do that. So uh, we have examples of a couple of places, and especially there, there was one school district who worked together with their school board and really made it their mission to invest in this and and developed a five-year plan knowing that it was going to be very expensive and it's ended up being rolled out I believe over over 10 years Um, but they really wanted to do it right and make sure that all of their school sites were prepared for it and that they wouldn't be caught short with funding and those kinds of things. So you have schools that that are able to really focus um, their attention and their funding to that. Then you have other schools that um, are able to procure grant money towards this venture. Um, and then most of the schools we're finding, even if they are in an affluent district, um, they're tending to use a mix of both print and electronic resources. And mm-hmm. so a school that may not be able to implement um, as much digital content, a lot of them are finding ways to work with that combination. And in addition to that, we know that um, the White House and other big um, telecommunications and tech companies are very aware of this digital divide and have been paying attention to it. And President Obama, back in 2013, announced his connected initiative, really trying to get 99% of our K-12 schools up to um, second-generation broadband by 2018. And he also uh, announced the Open eBooks initiative, which I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, so dovetailing with that, 
so here we are two years later after that that connected initiative is announced he announced in april this past april the open ebooks initiative which really presented a challenge to publishers to provide ebooks free of charge for schools in need mm-hmm. and they partnered with a lot of great organizations for that initiative and um, all of the top five publishers have um, contributed significantly to that. It's in the works right now. Those e-books are going to be provided via an app that's being designed by the New York Public Library. That project is well underway, but uh, an official start date has not been announced yet as to when when the app will be available and when those ebooks will be released. And the other major partner in that initiative, one of the other major partners, excuse me, is First Book. And um, they are the nonprofit literacy organization out of D.C. that um, is well known in the publishing industry. And they are serving as sort of the, the verification factor so that the ebook distribution is going to schools who do indeed really uh, need it most. Mm-hmm. So first book is able to verify that the schools who apply to receive these ebooks have the proper certification and that they are they are in need. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So where does where does that initiative go? I mean, how how long do you think uh, it's going to take to really get out get it up to speed? There doesn't seem to be um, an indication of how long it will take for for things to really get up and running um, as as they're still finalizing everything to really launch the app. Um, I, I have a sense that it's going to be you know extremely popular once people know about it, and hopefully there won't be glitches and in, in rolling it out. yeah, well, um, as, as we know <laughs> there sometimes are, but um you know, as that gets going, I know that um, that first book, especially, and you know, through indications of, of first book's relationships with um, publishers, there there seems to be an indication that they are all in it for the long haul. Mm-hmm. So, hopefully, it's going to catch on, and um, the partners are going to remain committed to providing this help for however long it's needed. And looking beyond the ebook, you have this really nice sidebar about what is beyond ebooks, and these, and you offer a, a kind of sampling of new products that uh, educators seem to really like. Uh, sure, there are. Um, the, the other thing about the the ebook market, uh, when we're talking about K through twelve schools, is that it's not just standalone ebooks where you're buying certain copies of certain titles, but a lot of them. Um, a lot of ebooks come bundled in with other types of software and various platforms, and um, they also come as part of databases, which is is a great way to um, to get a lot of digital content um, into the school library and into the classroom. And I know my I um, I'm also a librarian and have worked in a public library and. Um, databases were just an unbelievable resource for research 
And uh, we're hearing today that the teachers are finding that um, access in the classroom to be invaluable. And there are lots of players in that arena as well, providing everything from really academic research topics to uh, Rosen has a teen health and wellness database that, mm-hmm. that they're very excited about, they're excited about the relaunch for that. For younger kids, uh, Scholastic offers its Flicks suite of products, which is a lot of uh, trade books and interactive picture books, in addition to having nonfiction titles um, and series titles for older kids to do both research and uh, other types of reading. Also in that sidebar, the, uh, the AAP has this award, the Revere Awards, that they hand out every year. This is the 50th year for that, and they honor excellence in all kinds of educational publishing, and more recently they've included a lot of these digital, whether it be apps or games or databases or platforms, class management systems. There's just a ton of stuff, and our sidebar really just touches barely on that. We couldn't possibly cover it all, but the the winners and the other honorees of the Revere Awards, that's one place that educators and librarians can look to to see some of the new things that are coming out. And, of course, at all the educational conferences and in various journals and all of those uh, places, we we see discussion of, of just this really crazy burgeoning frontier of uh, lots of digital uh, things for the classroom. Well, that sounds amazing, and um, we'll we'll probably need to call you up again in a couple of years to get an update because things are changing pretty quickly. Yeah, that's for sure. It's changing uh, by the minute, literally, a lot of these things. And as the new school year begins, um, it is a popular time, you know, for a lot of teachers and school librarians to get up and running, trying some new things. And so I'm hoping to hear from uh, a lot of them that we spoke with how, how all of that has turned out as well. Well, we'll definitely have you on for an update. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been uh, great to get the sense of what's going on in schools and digital books. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Sabata here, author of An Ember in the Ashes, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another brilliant author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 